Last year I went to one of the partnership things in, in Tokyo and also in Singapore and now I'm here in Boston so I seem to spend a lot of time doing partnership related activity and, and when we were in Singapore last year there was uh, obviously a lot of China stuff on the news and there were two news stories one after each other that for me really sums up where we are with China. The first one was uh, talking about how China was now at the centre of the global stage, it was a major economic power and it was about time that the global institutions were restructured to take, part, uh, to take account of this power, the sort of things that you were talking about before. The next item was about Copenhagen. And the argument there was that China had 150 million people living in poverty, uh, another 500 million in danger of falling into poverty in old age, that per capita income in China might put it 103rd in the, in the league table, um, that this was still a very much a developing country, and the world simply couldn't expect China to take a global leadership role on the environment. And these two juxtapositions really sum it up quite neatly. I mean, here is a country that is in many ways at the centre, or close to the centre of the global economy, but it's also a country that, for the time being at least, is focusing very much on its own domestic developmental issues and is not prepared to take the forms of global leadership that I think some people, as I alluded to earlier this morning, were expecting China to take in 2009 and 2010. And this is, I, I, I guess, my starting point and the end point of, of where I'll, I'll, I'll finish when I talk about China and the crisis. Um, I think by most accounts China had a good crisis. Most people seem to think that it was uh, coming out of the crisis in a much stronger position in the, the global economy, and I think that's true. But it's quite interesting how over the last year... Let me put a little personal bit on this. I was in Beijing in January and February 2009, and there was cautious optimism. I was back in November and December, and there was exuberance and a very strong, almost arrogance about how China had come through the, the crisis. But then back in this July, I'm not saying the tide has turned, but people are really focusing on, on problems much more than they were in November and December, and how the crisis might have contributed to longer-term structural problems that China needs to address. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm going to make the argument that China's about to implode and collapse. But what it, what it does suggest is that the, the success of getting through the crisis in 2009 has been at the expense of perhaps longer-term problems that will need to be addressed, and it's not all quite as rosy as it appears. I think that the, the faith in the Chinese model, if we can call it that, was already being questioned in 2007, 2008, not least by the leadership itself. That's been further undermined. But in responding to the crisis, the leadership put in place a, a range of packages which in some ways I'll try and explain, makes it difficult, perhaps harder than before, for them to shift from what I would call a, a growth model to a developmental paradigm. I think we also see perhaps that while the state responded incredibly well and incredibly quickly in many respects, spurring economic growth in China doesn't seem to be the problem. Controlling it, slowing it down and changing the nature of economic growth is a problem. And that is the situation that we're now in. So, a bit of background to, to, to what was going on. China's leaders have for quite some time been talking about the, the problems with the Chinese mode of development, in particular uh, an over-reliance on investment and exports as a form of growth. And also, interestingly, uh, reliance on the wrong type of exports, 
Still, over half of Chinese exports are produced by foreign invested enterprises. It's about 54, 55%, with quite low skills levels and quite low value-added resigning in China. Actually, there's a big debate in the literature about the extent to which China was dependent on exports. What figure do you want to use? Pretty much, you can pick a figure and you will find that somebody has that figure in the literature. Uh, Anderson comes up with a very low, saying that 9% of Chinese um, growth is really uh, based on exports. Uh, the South Centre's done a report that comes out at over 50%. In terms of GDP, it's 40% of GDP, and the questions are whether um, you should count exports that are produced with imported components because they don't really add anything to the, to the domestic economy. Then other people saying that much investment in the domestic economy is actually driven by export industries. And, it, and it's a huge debate. But by and large, in, certainly in the, the UK and I think in a number of Western governments, the idea that China had delinked was really being pushed quite hard in 2007, 2008. Um, I think particularly by a couple of banks who had quite considerable investment activities going on within China. So invest in China, it doesn't matter if there's a global crisis, because everything's going to be fine. The consequence of the, uh, the idea that China's delinked is that, you know, as Anderson said, China's leaders don't need to be worried about exports dropping. The question I have is then, why were they? <laughs> and they clearly were concerned when these exports began to drop. So from about 2004-ish, the Hu Jintao and Jiao leadership were, were really pushing this rhetoric of shifting the paradigm away from a, a, a growth paradigm to a more developmental paradigm, more sustainable development. Sustainable in terms of environmentally sustainable, but also something that would be economically more sustainable over the long term. Uh, and this was something that appears, I think, in, uh, as a new paradigm. And in fact, there are uh, there's a continuation of some of the policies of the previous regime, but there's a real emphasis on, on shifting. This was proving quite difficult. One of the things that I think is often underestimated in, in the West is the extent to which there is this feeling of vulnerability in China. And a vulnerability that was really driven home in 1997 by the crisis. If you see that the way that uh, uh, the, the Chinese responded to a relatively small drop in export growth in 1997, it seems out of uh, out of keeping with the actual real impact of it. But I think it, it's indicative of the, of the vulnerability, the idea that China is vulnerable to a drop in exports, that China hasn't got the resources that it needs for the long term, and hence part of this uh, going out and the investment in Africa, Latin America, Australia to gain more and more resources. And I'll just put in here now that I think over the next five, ten years, food is going to become increasingly important as part of this outward activity. So the crisis in, in 1997, I think, be, be began to reinforce the need to do something about, about shifting the, the, the paradigm. And uh, there's a nice quote that I've got from uh, my old PhD student, Ben Young, uh, in the paper, where he goes through all the literature in China on the um, economic security and economic insecurity. And he says that of the myriad threats identified by those expert, uh, experts as potential threats to China's economic security, Five core themes stand out. Challenges to the competitiveness of Chinese enterprise and economy. Issues related to the security of resources vital to the economy. 
questions to the health of China's financial infrastructure, security issues related to its socio-economic development, and economic security issues stemming from its embracing of free trade agreements and an open market system. And there's a group of, uh, of writers that are broadly termed the, the New Left, which is a term that they don't particularly like and I don't particularly like either, um, that were relatively influential in, in promoting the idea of, uh, of China's vulnerability and, and, and it gained particular credence around uh, the World Trade Organization actually from 1999 through to 2001 when a number of these debates were taking place and some people were highly critical of what they saw as China's rights and interests being sold out by the leadership to the, to the global economy. So this resulted in a, an attempt to, to move to more sustainable growth and, and one of the things that, that happened in, from the end of 2007, really from the summer of 2007, was that it began to have an impact on the export of low cost, low technology goods from some of China's coastal provinces. The RMB had appreciated uh, since it had moved to a, to a basket, labour laws were being enforced uh, and there was a, a reduction of the tax breaks and incentives that were given to exporters. What's interesting here is that this was, of course, exactly what the leadership wanted to happen, but it resulted in massive complaints from coastal provinces. All of China's top leaders spent the summer of 2008 visiting China's coastal provinces, came back with the message that factories were closing down, that this was not right, and in July 2008 actually reversed many of the policies that they'd put in place in 2007. And then the crisis hits. And the crisis really did hit very quickly. Up until the, uh, the autumn of 2008, uh, export growth had been going at about 20% a month. And it suddenly began to plunge in November and December. Uh, and had a huge impact on factories in certain parts of China. And I think it's important to remember that the, the Chinese economy, in some respects, shouldn't be seen as a single entity. It's, it's, it's almost as if there are different economies as you hit different provincial borders. But something like 90% of Chinese exports are produced on the, the provinces that are along the coast. So it had a disproportionate impact on, on those places. When you look at uh, November 2008 to November 2009, um, exports were down 16% on the previous year. And so it had a big impact. Now the response was, was quite interesting. The, the, the first initial response was the announcement of a stimulus package of 4 trillion renminbi. I mean the numbers get a bit boggling, when, uh, and particularly when you try and then convert them into dollars or anything else, it's easy to lose off a naught somewhere down the way, or add one on, as Chilo did when he got Chinese debt to 160% of GDP because he'd got a naught in the wrong place. It was, it was 16. Um, actually, the 4 trillion, a lot of it had already been promised for the earthquake recovery. Um, but local governments themselves collectively announced 18 trillion US dollars worth of fiscal stimulus activities. And basically, if you work in the Chinese government agency and you didn't get a new car last year, then something went severely wrong. So there was a big fiscal stimulus. Um, there was the promotion of domestic consumption. Uh, people in the countryside in particular were given considerable incentives and grants and loans and, and vouchers to sort of spur um, domestic consumption. There was a big buy Chinese, big, big backlash actually against the um, Obama's Buy American speech. Um, so there was a... a uh, promotion of domestic consumption, currency policy was put on hold 
And this, of course, is still today an ongoing issue of friction between the United States and China in particular. Um, there are other measures put in place to protect domestic industries in the face of international competition. But perhaps most crucially of all, the tightening of monetary policy that had been a real core element of the attempt to shift the balance of growth from 2004 was changed. Uh, a central document was issued basically saying, do what it takes. And what we saw over 2009 was something like nine and a half trillion RMB's worth of, of bank loans. Now, this is important because it's this really almost reverses the policy that we've had from 2004 up to 2008. So the tightening, the attempt to control investment, goes out the window in the urgency to do something about the crisis and make up for the loss of these, these exports. Local governments aren't actually allowed to, to borrow money from the banks, but they set up these investment platforms that then borrow the money from the banks. Interestingly, these loans and other bonds that these companies put out are usually supported or backed up by land ownership. There's a, a very interesting book just come out on land in China, and it uses this great phrase that it's been commodified but not privatised. So if local governments control land or own land, they can bet on land prices going up as a, a guarantee of their debts or of their bonds, which creates a specific problem in China because as the property bubbles and asset bubbles have gone up, if you burst the bubble, you might end up with a debt problem. But if you allow the, the assets to continue, then you could be in big problem. In August, in Beijing, August alone, um, the average price in, uh, increase in housing was 12.3%, just in, in one month. And there are large parts of the country where we're seeing people effectively losing, not losing, but using all of their savings to try and get on the housing market now before, before it goes too far. Uh, and, and, and basically, gambling on the, on, the, on the future. So, what we see is, I think, at, at the very least, a temporary withdrawal from the, the, the attempt to shift from a growth to a developmental paradigm. And possibly, in some ways, back to the future. We could be back to the future of increasing non-performing loans in the banking system. There's a big debate in the, the, the economists who to look at China, Victor Schur and um, Mike Pettis are probably the two biggest pessimists talking about the possibility of a real hit to the banking system. Others point out that China's been through this before, uh, it knows how to deal with it, it has foreign currency reserves, it can recapitalise. But there is a concern about the growing level of debts, and in particular in some localities. So if you look at the country as a whole, it evens it out, but in some specific localities they are already effectively bankrupt. Um, there's this concern about bubbles, there's a big increase in overcapacity, inventories are building up. In parts of the country we've got roads that are quite literally going nowhere. Um, one of the new high-speed rail links was closed um, about three months after they opened it because it was just uh, not economical to, to use. And one of the other things that seems to be, to be happening, and I say seems and I, I put it in inverted commas, underline italics, is a move back towards the state from the non-state economy. Now, I don't want to push this too far because it could just be a temporary thing, but when the banks were loaning out all the money and the local governments, it seemed, obviously, if you're related to the state, if you're linked to the state, it was easier to get that money than if you're not. There is this idea that there has been a, 
an expansion of the sector and, and a retreat from the market. There is also, uh, if you read the reports that are put out by the European uh, Chamber of Commerce and the similar uh, organi American organisations, uh, the idea that it's harder to do business in China now than it was a couple of years ago. That the state and protectionism seems to have been taking uh, a greater role. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll skip through and quickly get to the global context and then we can perhaps... I was quite surprised when I went to China in uh, early 2009, the extent to which there was a feeling that China was being blamed for the crisis, because it didn't really seem to, to be that much of a, a discourse back at home. But within China, there was a very strong feeling that China was being unfairly blamed. And in particular, Martin Wolf, who uh, has already been mentioned, um, called, I think he called it China's rapacious mercantilism or something like that. And it really hit quite hard that this was unfair, that this was not a crisis of China's doing. And if you look in the paper, I've got a nice quote from uh, Wen Jiabao, who basically puts the blame fairly and squarely um, over here, in fact. I think we in Europe escaped some of the blame on this occasion. Uh, and so there was, um, a, a, first of all, an antagonism against the West for being blamed. It's not our fault. But then the G20, I think, really was quite important. And that it, it really cemented this idea of China being at the top table of the, the global economic restructuring. And that if there's going to be any new form of global governance, China's interests have to be at the core. In Japan, there was a lot of complaints that on all the pictures of the G20, uh, there was China on the front row in the middle, and the Japanese Prime Minister was on the, on the back. <laughs> that was some indication of the, the changing balance of power. There was, over the course, I think, of 2009-10, a lot of finger-pointing. A lot of um, saying, you, when we had a crisis in Asia, you blamed us. And now, dot, 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 and you can fill in the, the blanks. But just to, just to finish, I think we've been, I think we, we're seeing now an attempt to manage expectations. Over the last two or three months, there's been a real step back. And I go back to the idea of the, the second news report uh, that I heard in Singapore. That there is now there was a, a letter in the Financial Times by the press secretary at the Chinese embassy saying, don't expect China to do it. We're poor. We are still a poor developing country. We have a long way to go. This is going to be our major um, emphasis for the, for the time to come. And it's specifically in terms of the, of the currency debate, but, but not just in terms of currency. I think the, the euphoria of China being at the top table generated all these ideas about the G2, and I think there's an attempt now to, to rein back from that, so to manage expectations about what China can do and what it's prepared to do, given the still relatively significant development problems that it has to, to deal with. So I'll just stop. Yeah.